Welcome to Lambdaforms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Lambdaforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today, I am joined by Dan Barrett, the singer of Have a Nice Life, whose haunting home recordings have earned them a rabid online cult following. In addition to Have a Nice Life, Barrett also releases music as Giles Corey, which focuses on acoustic instruments, and Blackwing, which focuses on electronic sounds. Barrett released his second album as Blackwing, titled No Moon, in December, and I was delighted to have him on the podcast to talk about the record, as well as his thoughts on creativity, his relationship with his audience, and much more. Thank you for listening. The last time that I spoke to you was in an interview backstage at Brooklyn Bazaar, which is a venue that doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. for in a, in a very different set of circumstances. So on one level, I'm glad that I get to interview you now in a situation where I don't have to worry about potentially blowing out your voice after a show. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot has changed since then. So I just kind of wanted to get a, quick sense of how you've been since Sea of Worry came out, because when I was talking to you then, Sea of Worry still hadn't dropped. Since then, leading up to now, and then obviously once we get to the the Blackwing record, we'll have to talk about that as well in context of last year and whatnot. Sure. Yeah, how was that? So, I mean, first of all, it all feels like a, a million years ago, even though it's not that long ago. But yeah, I mean... Uh, the run-up to Sea of Worry was really great. We, we got to play a whole bunch of shows and really enjoyed that whole process and got to tour around. You know, Have a Nice Life is never really a, a live band or really conceived of as any kind of live project. And so it was just a really fun, interesting experience to get to tour even a, even a little bit with those guys and playing that material. And so... Um, you know, Sea of Worry came out after that. I think it got a pretty positive reception, I think. I mean, I think we had some kind of con- conception that it was going to be um, sort of a different sounding record. You know, we had done that on purpose. And so, you know, some people liked that, some people didn't. But I was pretty happy with how it came out. And then, you know, not too long after that uh i transitioned to getting ready for um a short giles Corey tour uh the giles you know we had been asked to play roadburn either as as blackwing or or giles Corey, and you know i i think i i decided you know i would much rather do giles Corey stuff live at at that point and um because at that point i really didn't have a full album of Blackwing material. And so, you know, we had started practicing and building out kind of what did we want the live set to be like? And, you know, the, the practicing sort of process for me is, is pretty time consuming because, uh, I was, you know, I live in Connecticut. I was driving up to Boston, which is where the practice space is and where a fair amount of the, the guys who were in the have a nice life, live band were and it was basically the same lineup and so you know i was traveling up to boston two hours you know each way 
on, uh, you know, after work to go do that. And we were just, just, just getting to the point where it sounded okay. Mm-hmm. Like, like we, uh, you know, the, the, we Tim and I have been very lucky in that the, the guys that were playing live with us, for example, at Brooklyn Bazaar or who played with us on Sea of Worry and during the Sea of Worry tour, they are playing musicians, right? Like they are, they are musicians that play in multiple bands. They play live a fair amount. They are used to kind of jumping in and out of different stuff. They're really, really talented, really accomplished and so you could kind of throw material at them and they can pick it up really quickly. I, on the other hand, uh, basically every time I'm done with a Giles Corey record, I then forget how to play the guitar. <laughs> so then I have to like learn again. So like literally was like, you know, getting into band practice and being like, oh, like I don't have calluses on my fingers anymore. Mm. So I have to go through this whole process of like, my hand hurts when I play bar chords, you know, it's like, I have to do that. And basically, you know, go through this whole humiliating process of, you know, someone being like, Hey, this Giles chorus song that you wrote, like what key is it in? And I'd be like, I don't know. I don't know (laughs) what keys are, much less what key this is. Um, So, you know, going through that whole process and, and just, just feeling like it was just starting to come together. And, you know, you got to think we were getting ready for, uh, shows in March and April. And this was like, you know, you know, December, you know, something like that. So we're, we, we had started several months ahead of time and we're really working into it. You know, then, then Kobe Bryant died and it was all downhill from there more or less. Uh, I remember in February getting the sneaking suspicion that, 2020 was going to be a very different kind of year. And I remember having a conversation um, where I was like, you know, do you think it's possible that Roadburn gets canceled or some of these shows get canceled? And and at that point, it still felt kind of like a, a weird prediction. But, you know, the world kind of ground to a halt. Uh, we, I, I knew pretty early that we weren't going to be able to play those shows um, just because of my personal situation with my kids and um, people in my family and so on. And so, um, but we, you know, we were kind of told to to sort of wait for Roadburn to make a decision and not like told in a weird way, but just they, they wanted to make the announcement on their own time and all that. So, you know, we did that, went through that process and right around that time, right around you know, March, you know, March is when my birthday is. So that was my 40th birthday. And, you know, we had planned like a, my wife had planned a surprise party, which I didn't, I didn't know about obviously. Cause that's, I don't know if you know how surprise parties work, but it's, you don't, you don't know they're happening. <laughs> so I, learned, I learned after the fact, you know what I mean? That it had been canceled and stuff. Cause we were going to go, you know, I don't know, do something inside. And, um, you know, it was right around that time that I was really like, you know, like, this year could either be really, really awful in the sense that I know a fair amount about myself at this point. And I know that my sort of default personality type certainly doesn't mind a lot of time inside and certainly doesn't mind a lack of social engagements and so on. 
and, but that I also tend in those environments towards depressive episodes and eating really emotionally. And, um, you know, I, I was already kind of putting on some weight before the pandemic. And I was like, you know, this is not going to go well. I can already tell it's just not going to go well. So I really put a lot of effort very early into having that not be the case. And so part of the reason that I said, well, I'm going to do, I'm going to work on the black wing record that ended up being no moon was that it was a thing I could do by myself. It was a thing I could do in a safe environment, right? I didn't have to go to a studio. I could work on it. And I knew, I knew just deep down that I needed a project mm -hmm. just to get through the year. It was the same thing physically. Like I hired a nutrition coach cause I was like, I need parental supervision. You know what I mean? Sure, like I was yeah. like, I need someone to watch me, uh, in order to kind of get through this. Okay. And it, very similarly, you know, when I started working on black wing, like I, I got the artwork for it really, really early. And I told, for example, like Jonathan, uh, from the Flenser, I told him really, really early that I was going to put it out that year. And it, that, that is all a variation on the same exact theme, which is that, I just will work harder and uh, be a better version of myself if I think people are paying attention. And it doesn't have to mean like the public. It just has to mean like someone expects you to show up. So I show up in times when if left to my own devices, I probably wouldn't. And um, I'm very grateful that I did that because I think 2020 ended up being a year that I think made me a much stronger person in a lot of different ways. But it could have gone a very, very different way, uh, very, very easily. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the story of 2020. It was a, a real eye opening year for me in many ways. Um, like I think it was for many people, but, mm. uh, I don't know. I'm, it's left me more optimistic than not about, uh, kind of moving forward from this point. So I'm grateful for it in that sense. There's a lot there that I want to get into first, uh, just to touch on the the Giles Corey live band, in addition to just the personal issue of relearning the songs and redeveloping the uh, the technique on acoustic guitar and whatnot, was there also work that needed to be done in terms of separating the live sound of Have a Nice Life from the live sound of Giles Corey, since it's a lot of the same musicians? Like, were there like conceptual hurdles that you needed to work through in those rehearsals as well? Yeah, I think it was it was less of an issue of it's going to sound like have a nice life because I think just the instrumentation of the songs was different enough that I, I wasn't particularly worried about that. It was more it was a very similar process to the one that we went through for have a nice life, which was this is not going to sound like the record. Mm -hmm. So if it doesn't sound like the record, what does it sound like? Right. And it's like, you know, I knew you know, like in a lot of my solo work, I rely a lot on just um, a, a a preposterous amount of overdubbing. And, uh, you know, why only sing a part once when you can sing it 10 times and just, you know, put all those pieces on there. And, um, you know, that I, I like the way that that sounds on record, but 
you know, unless I want the Mormon Tabernacle Choir on stage with me, it's not really doable live. And, you know, and so there's always this question when we whenever we move these projects that were recording projects onto the stage, you know, we don't we're not particularly interested in in slavishly trying to reproduce what's on the record. You know, I don't you know, that might be cool, but you can listen to the record at home. And so what can we do live that we couldn't do on record? Or what can, what can we do live that brings out a different aspect of that song? And so, you know, we had, for example, we were, we did a live version of the haunting presence, which uh, on the record is, you know, a really kind of far more abstract kind of piece and, you know, sort of swells at the end. It has a lot going on. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how do you kind of reproduce the feeling of that moment with just less stuff, right? You've got less instruments, you've got less sort of, you know, tonal possibilities. And so, you know, that's, that's always the question. And it, it takes a while to figure out, right? It really does. It takes a while to be like, Hey, I did this thing and it sounded really cool or, you know, to come across something, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm always really grateful for we're working with those guys is that they will come up with parts that aren't on the record, but, you know, in that live setting sound really cool and add something really cool. And, you know, you'll get to the point where you'll forget that that wasn't in the original, mm. right? It just feels like it fits in there. And they're, they're really good at that. So, you know, that, that kind of comes from experimentation and, you know, I think that was more the question. It was, how does this, how does this live as its own thing? Um, rather than just trying to say, well, you know, there's a flugelhorn on the record. So let's go down to, you know, guitar center rip and rent a flugelhorn. You know, it just, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's not as, not quite as interesting to do it that way, I think. And so what was the instrumentation looking like for that band? Because I know that you've done some purely solo versions of that project live before. Like there was like that live bootleg or uh, like uh, sound mixer recording that was on your band camp for a while. So mm -hmm. I, I assume that you were fleshing it out with like drums, other guitars. What, what exactly was the arrangement that you were working on at that time? Yeah, we had settled on, you know, drums. Uh, I was playing acoustic guitar and singing. Uh, Tim was playing bass and guitar and keys. And, and you know, then we had Joe Streeter um, playing guitars and also kind of coming back and forth on, um, I think Tim and Tim kind of switched back and forth on bass a couple different times. And each of them, you know, th these are all multi-instrumentalists, right? So they were able to kind of bring um, different keyboards or synths or whatever mm -hmm. and, and kind of swap in and out as they needed to. You know, at one point, Joe was, you know, it had like a foot trigger for, a you know, like a bass drum, you know, to kind of add that in there. So, you know, it, I was very lucky in that they were kind of all able to swap in and out on whatever we thought might be cool. Um, we were also doing, you know, Rich Otero, who uh, was playing drums and did um, a lot of uh, kind of more more of the ambient kind of sound design pieces and, and is himself like a really accomplished uh, kind of synthesizer musician and, and kind of knows a lot about music you know, programming and digital music programming and stuff. What, you know, was we were playing around with 
you know, uh, sort of sampler stuff and kind of having, you know, playing around with the theme on the record of kind of like ghost recordings and sort of like, you know, field recordings kind of coming in and out. And so we were, you know, he was, you know, kind of doing some of that. And we were like, oh, could we, you know, record the audience? Like, could we record the audience like surreptitiously before the set and then like work them in there and have it be, you know, noticeable to the point where like someone might be like, wait, that's me in the thing. You know what I mean? Like we were playing around with like some cool ideas. We also had um, Cody Castigian who did the uh, visuals uh, for the Have a Nice Life set. And like most recently is sort of collaborating uh, with Tim on like a, a, a project that's called Dr. Video that's that's been on Twitch. That's been like really interesting. Um, you know, he was going to do some visual some visualization stuff that was going to be really cool. So, you know, we, we try to keep it, we try not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but we're, we tend to be, we tend to try to shoot for the moon in terms of, we have a lot of ideas that we think will be cool. Uh, ultimately it always comes down to like, can Dan remember how to play the guitar? That's the, that's always the constraint. It's never, can those guys do the thing? It's always, <laughs> can I do the thing? And, you know, you have to have these embarrassing moments where I'm like, how do guitar pedals work and how do you plug them into an amp? Because I'm I've been the singer forever. I'm just used to showing up. You know, I don't have anything. I just I go there and it's fine. So, you know, it, it's uh, there's always a big learning curve. But that's also what made it fun. Right. It, it, it was it was kind of fun and exciting that way. So I have um, I have a lot of hope that that will still happen. I have a lot of hope that we will be able to get that thing going. I really want to do at least once. I want to give that material a, um, you know, the the old college try. And it's fun to play it solo. You know, I've done that before, but it just is kind of an inherently different thing. And I, I think it would have been, I think it would have been, I think people would have liked it. So hopefully that that happens. And so why did you decide to go with the Giles Corey material when asked to either do the that set or the Blackwing set? Mostly because I wasn't sure how we would do the Blackwing stuff. You know, theoretically, it's like so Tim and I for a very long time, you know, like when Have a Nice Life was a much younger project and, you know, this is like before anyone even wanted to see us play, right? We we were we thought about would we play shows or how would we play shows? And the the kind of common thread behind all those conversations has always been that we didn't want it to be Dan and Tim are standing on a stage and Dan hits the space bar on his MacBook and you know, there they go, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's funny because actually I have a friend, Jimmy Patterson, who has this project that's called if Jesus had machine guns, which is a fucking amazing, amazing <laughs> band name Seriously. And ha has, you know, has since like played with a live band and everything. But when he started, he literally did that. He had a, like a MacBook and he would just hit the space bar. And then he would like sing and it was basically like karaoke for his own music. Mm -hmm. And it worked for him because he had a certain amount of like, he's had a certain kind of stage charisma and uh, you know, he, he just was able to sell it and it was cool. Right. And I just never felt like I could do that. Um, I've never felt 
like I would have the same experience uh, live as I would doing that as I would have playing with a band and maybe I would but so when when it was when it was time to think about doing Blackwing live I was like well is it just Dan hits the space bar and you know ironically you know because my my creative life is just basically this story of you know losing the the logic file that i need you know over and over and over again some of the earlier blackwing stuff i just didn't have the same instruments and stuff so i wasn't even sure how i would i would need to recreate it it's not even like i could just pull, you know hit play on a you know an mp3 and so I, I was just like, I don't know enough about that world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure it's doable. You know, it's like I, I was having this conversation where I was like, what is Skrillex doing exactly? <laughs> like I could see him. I see him doing stuff, you know, and I've seen like, you know, the images of like the Daft Punk like stage setup, And it, you know, it looks like one thing from the front. And then in the back, it's I don't know what it is. It looks like a. You know, it looks like an IED or something that they're just, you know, twisting knobs on. So it's like, I just know I don't know a lot about it. I am curious about it and I am curious about doing something in that world. But it's just, I knew it was a way bigger learning curve. At least I know how a guitar works in theory. Right. You know, so, <laughs> uh, you know I, I think it's something that I would certainly be interested in doing, um, but it wasn't something I felt was ready to happen. So that, that's why I kind of went that way. It's really interesting hearing you talk about, and this is not to denigrate your technical expertise with the music stuff. because oh, I you can denigrate my technical <laughs> expertise. That's totally fine with me. But what I'm struck by, because I've been going through your blog and I've followed you on social media for some time, is that you're a very systematic and like logistic-minded thinker in the way that you write and in the way that you approach problems. And it's interesting that you kind of have this like black box of your own material that exists, seems to exist outside of that mindset in Mm. some ways. Yeah. I think in, in work and in a lot of different parts of my life, right there, I I am, again, I think it comes back to self-awareness. I am not naturally logistically minded at all, mm-hmm. right? Like the, I think about my wife who is is naturally very process oriented, very detail oriented, really, really uh, has like a really strong set of aesthetics. And I remember very early in our relationship when I was shipping enemies less stuff out of my apartment at the time and, you know, not doing a great job of it, right? So just... I don't know, I was buying all my stuff, like doing dumb stuff. Like I was buying all my envelopes from the post office instead of like buying them in bulk from Kinko's or something, you know, it's just mm-hmm. all these things that like didn't really make any sense. And she came over to hang out and I'm packing orders and I'm labeling them and I'm sending them out. And she watched me do this for like an hour. I would go over to my computer. So my, the printer was near the computer and I would, I would print the label and then I would take the label and I would walk like across the apartment to where the packages were. And then I would pack the thing. And then I would like walk over to the, like a place where I was putting them by the door. And, and basically I was doing like, 
you know, laps around the apartment. And she was just like, why don't you put the packages near the printer? <laughs> and I was like, you know, I was like, what? You know, it's like, it just had never occurred to me. Like I, I tend to plow through problems, right? I tend to just say like, this is the way the world is. I need to plow through it. And like in business, cause I, I you know, my job is I run my own business. That's, that's kind of where I work. And like what I learned there very quickly was if I'm going to like, literally if I'm going to survive and particularly if I want to have free time in which to think, I need to get way better at that. And so I, I have parts of my life that are very systematic and sort of very organized. And I think, you know, the flip side of that is that you need parts of your life that are kind of not like that, right? Mm -hmm. you, you need parts of your life that are deliberately unorganized because that organization, that sort of systematic piece of how we think, it's really, really valuable, but it isn't all there is. It, it isn't all there is to like the texture of life, right? It's not like, you know, I think about like people who kind of coach in productivity or sort of preach productivity or whatever. And literally I talked to someone who's like, his whole system is like, you schedule your day in 15 minute increments, like from when you wake up to when you sleep. And to me, that just sounds like death, right? <laughs> it's like, it's just a nightmare. And, and it's because it's this purely left-brained, systematic way of looking at the world. But if you think about like these impactful moments that you have, these like beautiful moments, these aesthetic experiences, they tend to come from boredom or come out of nowhere or you're, you know, you're walking down the street and you catch, you know, the full moon and it kind of strikes you in a weird way or you know, the other night I was having trouble sleeping. And so I took a walk, you know, everyone in my family is asleep and I just kind of took a walk outside and it was snowing. You know, it's like, it just was this highly aesthetic experience I could never have planned for or would never have expected or known was going to happen. It happened because there was space for it to happen. And so, you know, for my creative projects, there are things that I really do have to schedule. I've got to schedule time to come into the office to work on it. Otherwise I won't, right? I've got to, I've got to kind of have a sense of here's the project that I'm working on. And I've got to have a way of keeping track of the ideas and keeping track of, you know, like where those pieces are going to go and how done they are. But I almost never try to figure out exactly what I'm going to do in that time. Right. I, I try to let that time grow organically because I, I think there's a huge part of our brains that that is largely, you know, preverbal and unconscious that knows a lot about, you know, what is important and what can be beautiful and and what can be meaningful. And it's hard to put that in a spreadsheet or schedule it out. So, you know, I, I try to balance those two parts of my personality. Sometimes I do a better job of it than others. Um, but I do think that they're both equally important. Certainly. Yeah, I, I totally feel what you're saying there. Kind of to use a, a metaphor from your blog, there's a difference between like forestry for use of wood versus having a garden in your backyard, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's there's something some things that exist to produce a particular end. And there are things that are ends in of themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think part of the part of the place where, you know, Western culture, American culture, whatever you want to call it, goes particularly haywire 
is we only value things that produce ends. And we have a very hard time understanding things that are ends in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a it's a fundamental imbalance in the way that our culture works. It's been there for a really long time. And I think it it only is only getting worse. And so, um, you know, it's it's hard to save that space because the uh, the productive American brain sees free time as underutilized time, right? We, we see empty land as, well, you could put an apartment on that land and rent it out to someone, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes that's great. So, you know, it's, it's a really great kind of engine behind an economy and you need it, right? It's like, it, it, you need that, but, you know, taken to its logical extreme, I don't think it, it looks particularly good for anyone. So yeah, hopefully I, hopefully I do an okay job you have a sort of overlying structure on your separate projects. Um, And I believe that this is intentional and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but for Giles Corey and for Blackwing, you've kind of set out these fairly strict aesthetic guidelines about how the music is made, like what instruments are used. So Giles Corey is acoustic based and Blackwing is electronics based. So it seems like you've found a way to, kind of have these larger organizational structures at the sort of front end of the creation project process. But then once you actually get into it, the way that you're describing it is much more free form and much more intuitive. Yeah. I tend to think of the, the sort of, you know, I think it's a, it's a misunderstanding or, or maybe it's a myth, right? That we're the most creative or we're at our most creative when we have no boundaries mm-hmm. and it's the, the boundaries are what allow creativity, right? You are, you are always creative within a set of constraints, even if that constraint is only, you know, the vinyl record can only hold so much music before it deteriorates. And so that's your, max right Mm -hmm. there is a there is always a a set of creative constraints and part of the problem with uh the way that i've always recorded and largely the way that i've written music is you know you sit down at a computer and the song can be as long as i want right it can be any length i can have any instrument you know if i want to you know have a flugelhorn you can get one right Mm -hmm. and it's you know it's there at the you know the drop of a hat and so that can be great, um, but it also tends to lead to, you know, in that situation, what you will tend to rely on is whatever you've done in the past that's worked. And it, this is this is something that like it happens to everybody when you're just kind of given any sort of set of and any kind of thing that can happen and just a, a wide open landscape, you're going to tend to fill that landscape with the thing you are most familiar with. You, you're just going to retreat to the familiar. And so, you know, when, when I was sitting down to write uh, the Giles material, it was, I had just done a bunch of have a nice life stuff. And so it was a challenge to me to say, well, can I write something without distortion on it? Right. Because distortion was kind of the crutch I was leaning on. Mm-hmm. And similarly, um, you know, I don't really know how to play keyboard at all. And I don't know how to play piano and I don't know anything about that. And so I was like, well, you know, could I do an all synth record? I mean, is that even possible for me? What does it sound like? Right. 
And so those constraints in the beginning are designed to not allow me to do the thing I'm most comfortable doing. And in that set of constraints, creativity is then required. And so, you know, what ends up happening is that over time, those projects take on their own identity, right? So now I have a sense of what a, you know, Blackwing song quote unquote sounds like. Like there's kind of a, there's a, there's a, there's a framework there. I'm not sure I would call it a template, but there's a framework there that that project more or less fits inside of. And I could, you know, expand the boundaries of that framework, but it would be hard for me to justify, for example, doing a black wing record. Now that's all acoustic instruments, right? It just kind of breaks the theme. (laughs) Right. And so it would have to be something else. And so, yeah, I've kind of used these different projects as just ways of exploring different types of songwriting, you know, in a different world, you know, we just release everything as, you know, I release every record as Dan Barrett and it all, it's just everything all together. Um, I think the only reason I, I don't do it that way is because I don't have to, because I've always been, you know, a, a computer recording, you know, a home recording artist. And so I've never had the restriction of what a label expects or what, uh, or what I need to have ready for a studio. So, you know, I'm just kind of free to say, this is one project and now that project's done and now here's the next one. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's been, it's been interesting. I, I won't lie and say, you know, I totally intended it to be that way. Um, but I don't mind that at all. I don't mind that way of working where I'm like, Hey, I'm in this mode and now I'm going to switch to a different one. It keeps it interesting to me and uh, it keeps it fun. So yeah, I, I, I've enjoyed that at least so far. Do you think that part of the reason that you on the last have a nice life record kind of switched to more of a full band, like rock band sound is because you did have these two other silos that you could divert your more electronic oriented material or more acoustic oriented material into, or are those unrelated? I mean, it, it might be part of it. I think the largest reason that we wanted to do the, the live band sound on the record was because, you know, we were originally asked to play Roadburn for the death consciousness, like 10 year anniversary or something like that. And so mm-hmm. we were, we were playing the death consciousness material with those guys and so had developed some of the songs that were going to be on Sea of Worry. At that point, the, the songs that were already in existence were in really, really early demo stage. And so we had developed and sort of rewritten some of those songs to play live to sort of, you know, work them out with those guys. And so we just wanted to keep that. You know, we wanted to have this be hey, it's a snapshot of where we are at this time. And, you know, Rich and uh, Mike Cameron, who is on bass. Uh, Joe Streeter, you know, those guys were a big part of that writing process. And so it just felt right to say, this is what the band is in this moment, right? Mm -hmm. I always say like, have a nice life. Like what makes have a nice life, have a nice life is that it's Dan and Tim. And, um, you know, whenever it's not Dan and Tim, it's got to be something else. And, um, but it can expand beyond just us and still, I think, fit inside that framework. So, you know, if it was something, if, if I thought it, you know, completely went outside the kind of general boundaries of, of the Have a Nice Life project, you know, we would have called it something else, but it, it felt appropriate for us at the time. And it's nice, you know, 
whether we keep going down that route or not, I think it's really nice to have a record of that time because uh, those guys were great. And those those shows particularly were were really, really uh, moving on a lot of different levels. And so it's just nice to have that recorded. So returning to No Moon, from what I gather, some of these songs predated 2020. Some of these songs were were in the works previously. Is that right? Yeah. So some songs like um, like uh, Is This Real Life? Jesus Christ was like a real was a was a, a predated 2020 by almost like a couple of years, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, at least it was sort of floated around in demo form. Uh, we had played around with the idea of doing it as a have a nice life song. Like we were like, um, you know, should we put it on sea of worry or, but it never quite got anywhere close to, um, completion. And there were a couple of songs like that where I just had like real early pieces of it. Um, but I'd say probably like 70, 75% of the record or so was completed this year, both in terms of writing new stuff and then. I think like the the ominous 80s uh, song I had sort of written, you know, maybe like in 2019 or something. But, you know, in 2020, 2020 was the year where I finished the vocals and finished the mastering and finished the production and all that stuff. So, you know, I'd say about 75 percent of the record was done uh, in 2020. Right. So that kind of already cuts away my next question, which was going to be how much of a conceptual through line or conceptual approach to No Moon did you have prior to starting to work on the record the way that you described earlier by setting those goals for yourself? Yeah, like very little, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I think, I think the, the Blackwing stuff that I had had was really just the result of me kind of messing around, which is, I mean, where a lot of the stuff that I write comes from, right? It's like I have some time to record. I'm going to sit down you know, either I have a lyrical idea or, you know, like uh, the song um, Bollywood Apologetics. I was very specifically, very specifically trying to rip off the theme song to Puffin Rock, which is a kid's cartoon on Netflix, which has (laughs) this ridiculously good theme song. And I think somebody told me that it's like, oh, yeah, like the person who does the theme song for this Literally, it's a kid's cartoon show about puffins. Uh, my kids were into it at the time. And um, the song is, it's like really good. It's a really, really good. I highly recommend that everyone like, I think it's on Spotify. You can Google it or whatever. But I was like, I'm trying to steal this song. Like, it. I was like, I think I want to cover it. <laughs> and uh, I'm not... What happens is, and a lot of times, a lot of times I will do, I mean, I'm not, this is not a secret about my writing process at all. I will try to sit down to steal a very specific thing. Like, I think, I, I think the, um, the drums in Cropsy, which was on uh, Unnatural World, I was trying to steal um, the drum line from A Hundred Years by The Cure. And mm, it's like, mm-hmm. I know when I sit down, I'm like, this is going to be fine. And I'm not worried about plagiarism or whatever, because I'm not good enough to recreate this in any way that anyone would ever recognize. And so it was like, that's exactly what happens. It's like, I don't know how to do it. And so I'm trying to mess around, like going for a particular sound. And then way before I ever get there, I'm like, oh, this other thing sounds cool. And then I'm down that particular rabbit hole. Right. And so, you know, 
you know, there were songs that were kind of like floating around that were kind of like that. You know, when I decided that I was going to finish the record this year, you know, I set that goal for myself. It was pretty clear to me that like, you know, it was early in the, the process of, you know, kind of lockdowns and quarantine and masks and, you know, all that stuff hadn't quite hit yet. I think lyrically, it sort of came across, you know, the the lyrics and the vocals are typically stuff I'll do last. And so I think that's kind of where it, it crept in more. But, you know, I, I don't know. Themes on records are always strange. Um, t- to me, there there's a lot of themes in my stuff, but it, it I almost always recognize them after the fact. Hmm. And I think that, like, you know, I sat down... I was doing like a track by track album breakdown for folks on our Patreon. And I was like, oh, like I'm seeing like connections between the songs that I was not really aware of at at the time. And that happens a lot. It just happens a lot because, like I said, you're, you know, you're subconscious, you're unconscious, whatever you want to call it, the kind of pre verbal part of how we you know, sort of comprehend the world around us, that's always going, right? It, it's always processing a lot of information, way more information than you are processing kind of consciously with this sort of slower, more rational system of thought. And, you know, a lot of that comes out in art. It's one of the reasons that I like art. Um, and one of the reasons I like to make art is because I learn a lot about myself by the stuff that comes out of me. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not always a thing where it's like, I'm going to sit down and do something specific. I think you kind of have to, there's a reason that like the sort of ancient metaphor is the muse and you have to be open to the muse and the muse works through you or comes to you. It's, it's not something you consciously make happen. It's something you leave yourself open to. And that's a very accurate, at least for me, it's a very accurate description of what the creative process is really like. It, it's something that I allow to happen, but it's not something I can force to happen. And when I do, it's it's universally bad. <laughs> the worst. There are so many like demos on my computer that I, I like I will go back and listen to and I'll be like, you know, like, this is awful. It's awful. And almost always it means. I knew I wanted to do something. Nothing was coming to me. I'm going to make something happen. And it very rarely isn't any good. Uh, right. Maybe for other people, uh, just for me, uh, it's never quite worked that way. So two things that just came up. One, uh, I have a th- theory, something that I've been nagging about the the idea of like att- intentionally trying to copy an idea or copy another piece of music and failing in order to create a new thing, failing in a positive sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the song black wing, were you going for twin peaks on that one? <laughs> Cause there's well, that one yes, keyboard you know, line. Of, yeah. There's a lot of twin peaks influence on that record. I don't know if, if that song particularly, but I do know that like I had rewatched twin peaks around the time of that, that album. And then, um, there's a particular scene well, I mean, all the all the scenes with music in that show are ridiculous, mm-hmm. right? So it's like there's all the scenes at like the Roadhouse where the band is playing, and you're like, it's like the best song I've ever heard. Like, what is happening? You know what I mean? Um, and there's a particular scene in that show where 
and I can't remember any of the characters' names, right? But it's like the the sort of biker boyfriend James. Uh, model guy. Yeah, James. It's like, you know, they're they're like sitting around that like old school microphone and they're just doing like a little duet, like he's strumming the guitar and they're singing. And it's mm-hmm. like ama- it's an amazing. And it's like, what is happening in this show that this is so good? And ironically, then it's like someone d- did the the a video for Luther off that record and used a bunch of Twin Peaks imagery, which was not something that I'd asked for. It was that was kind of like their creative decision. So there must be a lot of like Twin Peaks stuff buried in that record, um, even stuff that I'm not super aware of. And then going to the returning to the idea of like thematic construction of a record, you do in your work have a lot of like repeating lyrics across songs Mm -hmm. um, where these like sort of almost like mantras that show up in the music will like pop up on multiple different tunes. And Mm -hmm. that I think is like a big reason that people are able to like unpack these larger, like thematic conceptual or even narrative breakdowns of your work is because it's almost like musical theater, the way that like, particular lyrics or melodies will return over and over again in new contexts, which I think sparks a lot of stuff in people's brains on an interpretive level. So why do you like reusing lyrics or recontextualizing lyrics and sort of tying your records together in that way? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm not sure why I'm not sure I could tell you why I like it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I do it because I do it for a few reasons. Like one is that like on a sort of conscious level, I am very aware of like, I am trying to make the sort of like enemies list, Dan Barrett extended universe of like musical projects where, you know, we've Tim and I have always really loved like world building in the context of the music. And it's, for me, it's always been an issue of, hey, if someone cares enough to, you know, really dig on all this stuff and really find all our songs and and really go through all these, you know, these different projects and stuff, there should, if people are going to dig, there should be something there for their, for them to find, Mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I like, I, I've always liked, you know, it's like I was a big Dungeons and Dragons kid and I, I like, you know, Tolkien and I like, I like the idea of, there's a lot of detail there. There's a lot of stuff to find. And so I, you know, I, I just enjoy that process. I also think that like part of it is because of the way that I record, uh, songs will kind of be in a lot of different stages of completion. So, you know, I might have, um, you know, I might have a song that I I sort of, you know, almost finished two years ago and that's still in the rotation. And then there are songs that I'm just, just doing now. And also because of the way that I record, um, I record kind of over long periods of time. And so I'll come into the office and I'll maybe, you know, if I'm working hard on something, I'm maybe coming in once a week, right? Like I, I have a job, I have a family, I've got kids, like I'm just not in recording all the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's good. I, I wish I could do it more regularly, but so I'm coming in and I'm kind of like, don't remember where I left off or, you know, I've got a bunch of different stuff going on. And so I will you know, work on a song, bounce it to, you know, a a sort of listenable format, you know, 
throw it on Dropbox, and I will listen to that song over and over and over again for a week or for two weeks. And that's kind of how I'm thinking about what do I want to add? What needs to happen here? How does this need to be edited? You know, it, it's that's kind of where a lot of this sort of writing and rewriting comes from. And I think part of it is like, you know, you're listening to all this stuff and there are things that just jump out at me as being thematically appropriate and sort of something that I want to respond to in some way. Right. So it's almost like I'm listening to the record before it's done and then writing a response to that record. And so mm. it's kind of, you know, you get sort of a snake eating its tail effect at that point. I think that's probably part of it. I mean, the musical theater thing is not is not too far off base either. Right. And it, there's a lot there that I'm interested in. And I think a big part of me is very aware of what people's expectations are and what my own expectations are. And I try to speak to that sometimes very, very blatantly, right? Like, or very um, overtly. And so, you know, I will write something like, for example, like the, you know, so the line in, in No Moon that gets repeated the most is the, you know, I want impossible things. I want to love and be loved. And, you know, the first time I write that, that's like a real feeling that's being expressed in the moment. The second time it comes in, I'm now out of that emotional moment looking at that and saying like, Jesus Christ, really? You're going to yeah. say that? <laughs> You're married, you moron. You know what I mean? And so then it's like, well, okay, now I'm now that's the feeling. And now that goes in there, too. Yeah. And so, it, it I you know. It, it's not um, split personality quite, but these things end up getting very embodied for me in a weird way. Like Giles Corey is the one that's the most specific. Like Giles Corey to me is a, it's like a person that I become sometimes and then I'm not the rest of the time. And I think about it like that. Like I think about Giles Corey as a him. And I think about it's like, you know, if there's a voice in my head that's particularly, you know, hostile or particularly negative, like to me, it, it like feels like another person feels like that person. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in, to a certain extent, you know, these kind of moods that I go through and, and get kind of embodied in the music they start to exist externally to me and then i start to respond to them so i don't again that's not like all super conscious it's not like i sat down and it's like i diagram like how i'm gonna do it but i think over time it just starts to happen naturally as i'm i'm listening to stuff and i'm recording and i'm working on it, i'm tweaking it you know and by the end of it i don't ever want to hear it again um but um yeah, it's, it's an interesting process, and I, I don't really know how to write any other way at this point. So for better or worse, it, it is what it is. I'm glad you brought up that particular lyric, the the Impossible Things lyric, because when I was listening to it, what it made me think about was the song I Don't Love and sort of the distance that has been covered in your life from I don't love to I want impossible things but even wanting to love and be loved mm -hmm. seems like such a, a a gulf 
from the death consciousness era in some way. So it, it I, I've in our previous conversation before, I've sort of talked about the way that the like Dan Barrett extended universe fandom has sort of grown up with your work to some extent. And there's this element of personal growth. And that's something that you also have on, on this record on, on choir of assholes. And I, I want to talk about that as well, but mm. thinking about the way that like that, those two ideas at two different stages of your career kind of like are in conflict with each other in a good way. And I'm sure this wasn't intentional, but that's just to me, like it sparked that, like this, like really strong emotional reaction in me in part because I have had a very different emotional reaction to your work at a different point in my life. Yeah. I think a lot of the stuff that we do is very much, it's very much snapshot in time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very much about what is happening in that moment. We, I really try to keep at least my lyrical content as, I mean, it, it doesn't, it's not always lyrically straightforward, but it's emotionally straightforward, right? Yeah. It's like, here's a, here is exactly what is going on. And I can listen to um, different albums and be like, this is exactly what is going on. In, in at this time in this song. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think, you know, death consciousness continues to find an audience. And I think, you know, partially it's the, the world that we live in is, is, you know, one of algorithmically selected music. And so death consciousness kind of rides that wave in a lot of ways. And I think that people that find that record and really connect to it, they tend to be like at a certain point in their lives. You know what I mean? They, mm-hmm. they tend to be young. They, they tend to be, to really feel disconnected and they, they tend to really feel hopeless about that disconnection. And to a large extent, the reason that I put myself out there uh, on social media in terms of like sharing stuff about my life or, you know, the the writing that I'm doing outside of music. It's largely to 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 show people like that, like, hey, it's not it's not always like that. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it, life doesn't look like this forever for most people. The flip side of that is that I find it really funny. It, it's like uh, something that I've heard a couple of times is like, well, you know, no, no one ever says this to my face, but it's like, I'll see this online where someone will be like, oh, you know, you know, they're there. I love death consciousness, but like now Dan isn't depressed anymore. And so I don't, you know, I don't like it as much, you know, it's like, oh, he has a family and he's not depressed anymore. And I'm like, I don't know. Have you ever been married with a family? It's just not like that. And I don't think, I don't think you know what it's like. And to people that like you kind of said, like sort of grew up with, me or sort of are are closer in age with me. I think they resonate with that material a lot. And I think it just kind of has something to do with where you are. Like music finds you at a certain point and the music that you really, really connect with, it's got as much to do with you as it does with the music. Right. Of course. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, um, it, it is an interesting, it's an interesting sort of phenomenon to watch because in a lot of ways, the audience for death consciousness, like kind of seems eternal. Like they, they, 
they're, they're kind of always in this mode and it's because new people are always finding it. And the people that connect with it enough to reach out tend to be having a particular kind of experience that that record mirrors in a way. And that's, that's usually the feedback that I get is like, Oh, I, you know, I, I felt so connected to it and you know, it really, they really um, identify with it. And then they find out that I'm like 40 and it like blows their mind. Cause you know, that's real old. And uh, you know, I was like, well, I wasn't 40 when I wrote it, but <laughs> I'm 40 now that was a long time ago. And you know, it, it, it just is, it's interesting to me. So, you know, all I can do, I, I think, there's a world in which I am trying really hard to match people's expectations of the stuff that I put out. Right. And those expectations are based on a record that I wrote at a particular point in my life. And so in a way there's this kind of like weird creative arrested adolescence where you just never move on because you're trying to write death. You know, we always say like death consciousness too is like the worst thing we could ever try to do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you can't ever do that. You've got to write the thing that's resonant for you now. And, you know, if anybody's worried about it, you know, I say, don't worry, there's plenty to be depressed about as you get older. <laughs> and there's plenty to be depressed about, you know, when you're in a relationship that's great or when you have kids or there's, it's a, I'm not worried about the creative fuel going away anytime soon. That sort of uh, brings us to the Choir of Assholes track, mm. in, which I think take, tackles that exact problem head on of the, regardless of, you know, you can have positive things in your life, like you can make certain types of progress and still run into a sense of hopelessness or meaninglessness in your life. And you still have to battle those issues. Um, mm-hmm. And in the, the the part of the record that like really just sort of, grabbed me in that song is the the voice memo that you include in the second half of it Mm -hmm. and to me it actually it's another sort of intertextual thing it reminded me a bit of the in contrast the the contrast between that and the clip in the opening track of the the first giles Corey record of you playing piano and screaming like in the background of Mm -hmm. the song at the end and it struck me that those are such radically different types of emotional vulnerability that are both incredibly powerful in their own ways. So I I just wanted to sort of pick your brain on why you decided to include that voice memo and what you think it means in the context of the record. Yeah, I, I know in the moment it was kind of a, it was sort of a spur of the moment decision in the sense of when I was working on the song, I was like, Oh, you know what I should put in here? And then I'm like scrolling to my phone and, and, um, it is one of those things where it would be very easy for it to not work at all, but it, it just felt like it worked in the moment. You know, I, it's been a thing for me for a little while that I wanted to try to express. I think a lot about, like my dad, so my dad passed away. He was a really, um, a really kind of extroverted, really loving guy, really supportive guy. And, you know, he was like, you know, kind of like the, you know, it's slap your back type of guy. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, gave everyone like really big bear hugs, um, you know, was involved in sales and the insurance industry and all that. And, uh, 
I remember when he passed, kind of spending some time going through his office, kind of just idly or whatever, and um, finding a notebook and like opening the notebook. And he was like writing his goals down, right? And he's like, he was an overweight guy. So, you know, he's like, I want to lose, you know, X amount of pounds, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it really made a deep connection with me because I have always done that. I've, I've always been very goal oriented. I'm always like making plans for the future. I always say like, it's kind of the flip side of this like sort of depressive part of my personality where it's like, I can't move and I can't get out of bed and everything's hopeless. The flip side of that is like, there are times when I'm like, okay, like I'm going to make a million dollars and here's how blah, 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 blah. I'm going to break it down. And you know, and I have like all these old notebooks where I'm writing my goals, right? Like for a long time, my only goal was I want to be able to go out to a restaurant whenever I want. Right. Mm -hmm. It was like just this big thing for me. And like, there's all this stuff I wanted to do. And there's kind of like a dual message there, right? Where it's like, I wanted to express that part of myself because in a way, in a way it's easiest for me to be open about being depressed because again, that's what people expect. So it's like, I can just be like, yeah, you know, I'm sad. And people are like, wow, like, great. Like so deep, you know what I mean? Like, it's awesome. <laughs> And, and it's five like, stars on rate your music exactly yeah, yeah yeah and i'm like you know but there's not any real vulnerability right and i very much believe in vulnerability in the context of music and so you know i was like well in a in a way it was much more embarrassing to share you know not embarrassing but it felt riskier to share that part of myself right mm -hmm. and then the flip side of that is you know, the, the back half of that song, like on the album title, it's called like, you know, you think it'll make you happy, but it won't. And it's this like reminder to myself that like all the stuff I'm talking about, there's like, okay, like I want to have a job that has X, Y, Z. And I want to be, you know, I'm like talking about, I want to get stronger and I want to feel good about my body and I want to feel this and I want to feel that. And I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Like none of that stuff in the end is what ends up making you happy. And if, if you look at like, you know, like, you know, death consciousness is, you know, my dad died very suddenly um, and kind of like me going through that experience. And then, you know, Giles Corey was, you know, the aftermath of that, my relationship fell apart. I was really isolated. You know, I'm, you know, I'm going through a depression then. And then it's like, you know, it's like all these things it, it, looking back as as you get older, at least as I've gotten older, the primary realization that I have is like these things aren't connected to the external uh, sort of characteristics of my life. They really aren't. It, it is just a part of who I am. Right. Mm. Like there is a depressive part of my personality that is always going to be there and is not really something one that I could get rid of or that I want to get rid of, right? Like there's there's a part, there's a part of having a depressive personality that really lends itself to a creative point of view or lends itself to wanting to make the world a better place, right? Hmm. It lends itself to having a deeper sense of empathy and connection with people because you know what suffering feels like, right? And you you know it's not, 
because of anything. It's it's not some kind of just punishment for something. It, it is just this chemical ride that experientially feels a certain way. And if you cut that out, you cut out the lows, if you cut out the variability in that sort of emotional texture of life, what you get is boredom. And mm. you don't get all the peaks. You can't have peaks without valleys, right? You just get a flat line, which is a really good metaphor for multiple reasons, right? <laughs> right, right. So, you know, for, for me, it was like, you know, there's, like you said, there's, there's kind of a, there is a, there's a dialogue within the song where the first part of that song is like, it's basically like me giving advice to myself. And it's saying like, look, you've, you've felt like this for so long. You need to fucking get over it and you need to kick your own ass and you need to, you need to stop just moping around and you need to go do a thing. And the backside of that record or the backside of that song, even in the title is saying, but don't forget that doesn't solve the problem. Like right. the problem is an unsolvable problem. And, you know, what matters is that you, you engage with it. What matters is not that you solve it. What matters is that you engage with it somehow. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, um, it was interesting. I'm, I'm glad it worked the way that it worked and it's one of those things that I have, like, I listen to that song and I get very mixed emotions, which is usually, to me, a kind of sign that something about it works, right? Like, I always say, like, it makes me feel some kind of way, but I don't really know what kind of way it is yet. And um, that's okay. I think that's that kind of means at least that it works on some level. And, you know, people seem to like it. It was the... For me, it felt like the riskiest thing on the record. So I'm I'm glad at least that, that people seem to dig it. Yeah, no, I think you're right that sometimes the songs that evoke strong but unspecific emotions, those are the ones that linger with people, you know? Like they're the ones that you have to chew over and like determine how you feel over a longer period of time, which means to me that it's a worthwhile piece of art to make because something that you just look at it on the face, know exactly what it is, and it's done that doesn't have like a long shelf life. Whereas a song that has a more complex emotional tenor, you return to more, you know? Cool. So I, I wanted to talk very briefly about the sort of way that you've, you interact with fandom um, and that you interact with the sort of public facing side of being the enemies list guy. Cause you've got the Patreon, you've got your blog and you've got your, your newsletter. And these are, you know, you've, you have this sort of business life and music life and you talked about that you do kind of deliberately want to have these things melded to some degree so that people can see the connections and maybe like kind of escape that death consciousness trap to some extent. Do you ever mm. also worry about potentially like ruining the mystique in some way or like damaging the connection that you have with your fans by being that open? I've thought about it. I think that, um, I don't, I'll put it this way. I don't think there's a problem with mystique in music. I think that my personality and my aesthetics are essentially just opposed to it, mm -hmm. right? Like, I, you know, I would never, well, I won't, I won't say never, but I have zero interest, for example, in like wearing a costume on stage 
right? I, I have zero interest in, you know, uh, 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 like putting forward an image outside of the record that is other than what I really am. And I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with it. Like I've got nothing wrong with people that do that. I think that's a particular type of project, particular type of thing. And I think there's value in it. It just isn't something that I'm either able to do or willing to do. It's hard enough just being myself at this point. I don't think I could, you know, I'm always saying like, you know, I, I don't think I could, you know, I don't think I could pull off a leather jacket. So I'm just <laughs> not going to, right. I'm just not going to do it. And there's a certain kind of there, there's a best version of myself. That's what I want to be. And I'm interested in a variety of things. And if people aren't interested in those things, you just opt out of it. Right. It's not like you have to, you don't you don't have to sign up to hear me talk about, you know, game theory or whatever. If that's not your bag, it's not your bag. But I'm also a very deep believer in like, I don't need a lot of people to, to, to be into everything that I do, right? If I get a thousand people or 500 people in this whole world to be all the way into this specific thing I'm trying to do, that's more than enough, right? Mm -hmm. That's more than enough to support the project is more than enough to just keep making stuff, which is all I really care about. So yeah, it's nothing, nothing against it. And I'm, I'm sure that there are people that, you know, picture me as handsomer and cooler than I am when they hear the record. Uh, but to me, it's like, I, I'm not going to pretend to be handsome and cool. You're going to get the the doofiest possible version of myself, uh, you know, and this and that's what I like. It's what I enjoy. You know, I, I think if I if anything comes of this project long term, it, all I want it to be is that somebody hears the stuff that we do or reads the stuff that I write and thinks, well, if they can do it, I can do it. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, that's all I really care about. So I think it's, it's better to be open in that case than not. Do you ever have people from the, the business side of your life that stumble into the music side of your life by accident? Very rarely, very rarely. I remember when I was a paraprofessional, I was working in a a high school classroom of special needs kids. And I, I did that job for many, many years and, and really loved it. A wonderful boss of mine, uh, Kate, who, who I really, really got along with. It's a wonderful lady. I remember that she was like, I came into work one day and she was like, Oh, so like, I, I looked up your, your music <laughs> and I was like, Oh, cool. <laughs> She's like, and it's like real awkward for a while. And then she's like, some kind of like devil thing. Or <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, people ask me, it's like, you know, my, my uncle will be like, you know, what is your band like? And I'm like, I don't know. It's like rock music. I don't know what to say. Like, I honestly don't know what to say. Um, but, you know, like I, there are people in my family that, that dig the band. And, um, but there's very little overlap um, between like my, my professional life and my music life, which is fine. I think that, you know, the, the two don't need to be completely united, but, um, yeah, not, not too much overlap for sure. And so finally, uh, what do you have on the horizon at the moment? Do you have any other records that you're working on or any other of your uh, projects that are in the works at the moment? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, just, this is the, the sort of period immediately following the release, which is really, 
the most wide open time. Um, I think on the professional side, like on my work side, um, things are going to be very, very busy the first part of this year. Um, for completely non-musical reasons, I, I just my schedule is going to be very full. And so, um, you know, in that sense, I'm probably not going to be working super hard on anything. Um, Tim has been producing a bunch of Have a Nice Life demos and kind of sending them out. We'll probably try to find a way to work remotely, which we never really have, and kind of dig into those. Uh, he's an incredible songwriter, and so he's sent a whole bunch of stuff. And like tentatively, I, in my head, the next project was always another Giles Corey record. And I don't really know what that is yet. I have some really vague ideas and I have the vaguest idea of kind of like how I would, again, uh, I will never, I just cannot bring myself to do exactly what people expect. And so I have some ideas for ways in which I would play with the formula. Um, but it's, you know, so, so vague. Um, so really it's, this is kind of the ideation stage where things are floating around and what will happen is over time, something will grab me, something will seem interested and I'll, I'll experiment with it and a bunch of stuff will fail and then something will seem to work and that'll kind of open up a door that I will, you know, walk through with increasing sort of precision and, and sort of, you know, scheduling of things out. But for now it's, it's pretty wide open. I'm, I'm really, really hoping that, um, you know, I was, I was so hopeful that this year would be the year live music comes back. I don't really think it's going to be, but I do think that by the end of this year, things will, you know, start to come back in that, that space. And I think, that um, hopefully the year after, you know, we'll be kind of working on live projects again. The minute I can get a vaccine, I'll be getting like two in my eyeballs, like whatever <laughs> I can get. And, uh, you know, until then, I'm just going to let I'm going to let that process breathe a little bit. But that's that's the general plan. You're working on some have a nice life stuff, working on, you know, probably a Giles Corey thing. But but who knows? And uh, we'll see where the process takes us. Well, that all sounds great to me. And certainly I'll be right there with you with my eye, eyeballs wide open as well. So, you know, fingers crossed that we get some live music shortly and, you know, best of luck on all the remaining projects. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you again for listening. And thank you, Dan, for joining me. You can find Black Wings music through the Flenser on theflenser.bandcamp.com or on nowflensing.com. You can find more episodes of this show on the Apple Podcast app or you can grab the RSS feed directly from soundcloud.com slash landniforms-sounds. Feel free to email me at landniformsband at gmail.com. Until next time.